Let's pray. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. History often surprises. Events have happened in the past that you would say that you couldn't possibly have predicted. Who would have predicted in 1912 that the so-called unsinkable ship Titanic would sink within four hours on her maiden voyage, drowning 67% of the people on board? Who would have predicted that the citizens of Berlin would wake up on the 13th of August in 1961 to find that their city had been cut in two by a wall that had been erected overnight? On a more positive note, who would have predicted that in 1990 Nelson Mandela would have been released unconditionally from jail after 27 years in prison and would go on to become South Africa's first black president? However, if you'd looked a little closer, whilst you wouldn't, probably wouldn't have said, I saw that one coming, there were indicators at the time that pointed to these surprising events the watertight compartments that were said to make the Titanic unsinkable, in fact, contained a fatal flaw. And that was a critical factor in the Titanic's sinking. Roughly half a million people crossed the sector borders in Berlin each day. And in 1960, around 200,000 people made a permanent move to the west West Berlin to get a better living. East Germany was on the brink of social and economic collapse and the wall was their response. In 1989, F.W. de Klerk became South African president and he set about dismantling apartheid, probably aided by the increased international political pressure. And Nelson Mandela was a powerful anti-apartheid symbol. I was preaching at the um, eight o'clock service today and um, there was a visitor here and he came up to me afterwards and he said, I'm South African and I lived through that with a big smile on his face, which is rather nice. But Saul, Saul becoming a Christian, If you've been living in Jerusalem when the Jewish authorities were persecuting Christians, when Stephen was stoned to death for his faith, would you have believed anyone that had told you that Saul would one day take the good news of Christ to the ends of the civilized world? Saul, one of the zealous Pharisees. Saul, who'd been complicit in Stephen's execution. Saul, who was going out of his way to seek out Christians and imprison them, who was making a special trip to Damascus to do just that. I think Saul would have been the very last person that you would have thought would ever have become a Christian himself, let alone being one of the major leaders in the early church. How on earth might that have come about? Let's look a little bit closer at Saul. He, he wasn't just an ordinary Jew. 
He was a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees do actually get rather bad press in the Gospels because they were so opposed to Jesus and arguing with him. But actually, they weren't all bad. They were a Jewish pressure group who they wanted to purify Israel through following the Jewish law really closely. They had a particular devotion to Scripture, its meaning and its application. They had their own patterns of prayer and meditation. They were a really committed bunch of people. And I'm sure that Saul was trying his best to lead a pious and righteous life, serving his God. He'd never met Jesus. All he knew of Jesus was what his, was what his fellow Pharisees had told him. And so, as a zealous Pharisee himself, he tried to set about eliminating the Christians. But if Saul, as a Pharisee, was a man of prayer, however mistaken he might have been about Jesus, he just might be open to God breaking in to his life. And so it was on the road to Damascus when Saul's beliefs and his whole life was turned upside down, when God revealed himself to Saul in Jesus in an act of sovereign grace. Now, I'm going to speculate a little bit at this point, uh, along with some commentary writers, I might add, so there's a, you know, a little bit behind it. Um, there was a type of Jewish meditation on Scripture which was very popular at the time that involved a sustained contemplation of the great vision that, pro that the prophet Ezekiel had had of God, which is described in Ezekiel chapter 1 where Ezekiel describes seeing the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. Now, devout Jews would meditate on this scripture, hoping that somehow they too might be allowed to glimpse something of the glory of God, to see God face to face on his throne. Now, just imagine if Paul were practicing that meditation on the long, slow road from Jerusalem to Damascus. He was on his way to act for the glory of God, a glory that he believed was being besmirched by those crazy Christians, those crazy followers of Jesus. So just imagine, to keep his zeal rightly directed, he was meditating in the hope that he will catch a glimpse of God's glory. And then suddenly, Paul's world was turned upside down when God did, in fact, reveal himself in glory. But it was the glory of the face of Christ. Encountering the living Christ both confirmed and overturned everything that Saul had been taught. The law and the prophets had come true the God that Saul had been serving had indeed come to rescue his people. But he'd done it in a shocking, horrifying way. The God who had always promised to come and rescue his people had done so in person, in the person of Jesus. And Saul, far from acting to glorify God, was actually persecuting him by going after the Christians. 
Saul's life was just totally turned around by this overwhelming encounter with Jesus. And we know that the Lord had a massive task for him to do, one that he was uniquely qualified to carry out. As a highly intelligent, well-educated, biblically literate Jew, he was just the person to understand and tell people how the law and the prophets uh, pointed to Jesus. And as a Roman citizen, he had a huge advantage when it came to preaching the good news of Jesus in the Roman Empire. But what next? The earth-shattering encounter with Christ had left Saul blind and helpless. He was told by the Lord to complete his journey to Damascus, where he would be told what he had to do. But his companions had to lead him there by the hand. And this is where Ananias plays a critical role. And we know nothing about him except in this passage. But it's enough. We know that he was a follower of Jesus, someone who knew how to listen to the voice of Jesus because the Lord had called him in a vision. Not, I imagine, the terrifying vision that Saul had had. But the Lord had a task for Ananias too, a task that needed a great deal of faith and courage to undertake because it seemed ridiculously dangerous. Ananias was told that Paul had arrived in Damascus and that he was blind. He was instructed to go to Paul, to lay hands on him and to restore his sight. Given Paul's record against the Christians, it was the equivalent of giving herself up for arrest and possible execution. But the way that the Lord reassures Ananias is actually, I think, quite telling. He says first that Paul was praying and he had a vision that someone with Ananias' name would actually come and restore his sight. He also reassures Ananias that he had chosen Saul to carry the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, there's a really strong implication here that Saul was now a follower of Jesus and not a persecutor of him. Even so, I still think that it was a remarkable act of obedience, faith and sheer courage for Ananias to go to Saul's house, given Saul's past. And I love the way that Ananias addresses Saul. Brother Saul, welcoming, inclusive, part of the family, bound together by new ties, a new sort of kinship, a shared faith in Christ. I wonder how the word brother sounded in Saul's ears. I suspect that that must have been quite overwhelming because he would almost certainly have been deeply ashamed of his previous attitude towards Christians and probably quite fearful of meeting any of them as a blind, helpless man. Ananias is welcoming and reassuring. His healing touch restores Saul's sight. And Ananias goes further. He baptizes Saul effectively vouching for him 
before he introduces him to the rest of the Christians in Damascus. Quite a tricky moment, I would imagine, both for Saul and for Ananias. And this was just what Saul needed at the start of his new life. Baptism in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Saul wasn't alone. He was part of a new family, the community of believers. It's a great story, isn't it? But where does it leave us today? Well, first and foremost, I hope that this story is an encouragement to us. The early Christian church could have been on the brink of extinction before it had even got started if Saul had persisted in the systematic persecution that he'd started. But God intervened in one of the greatest reversals in Christian history, turning persecutor into missionary. And we too live in a world that so often seems to be on the brink of disaster. Climate change, wars, famines, huge issues that we feel powerless to influence or to change. But this story illustrates the power of God to intervene in our world when things seem at their darkest. They can turn around, as they did in this story, in most unexpected ways. And this story, I think, gives us hope that the God who was powerfully active then is powerfully active in our world today. Now, at one level, we could say that we could never have predicted Paul's conversion. But if we look closer, there are indicators here too, just as there were for the unexpected events that I described earlier. Paul was a pious Jew. He obviously thought that he was doing God's work by persecuting the Christians. And sadly, he got it disastrously wrong. But faced with the living Christ, Paul instantly recognized him and in a life-changing moment knew him to be his Lord. Both Paul and Ananias were open to God and obedient to his call. After Saul's dramatic encounter on the Damascus Road, he fasted and prayed in Damascus for three days, wanting to be told what to do next. Ananias' call was very different. He heard the voice from the Lord probably whilst he was praying, it seems to be a little bit more of a process going on at the time, as Ananias was understandably rather nervous and needed a bit of persuading. But Ananias too was obedient. Now some of us may well have had a road to Damascus moment where at some point in our lives we've encountered God in a very real and life-changing way. But for many of us, our faith journey may have been more gradual. But whatever our personal experience, if we are followers of Jesus, then he has tasks for each one of us to do. Tasks for which we are uniquely qualified, as Saul and Ananias was, were. Um, now, I suspect that in general, the bigger or harder the task, the louder the call. Saul had a huge task and his calling was quite spectacular. Ananias, too, had a very clear call. 
a very clear vision from the Lord. And his courageous response to, Saul's, to God's call led to Saul being given the best possible start in his new life as a follower of Jesus. When I look back over my own life, at times when I've heard God most clearly, uh, I'm not in a road to Damascus way, but more a, a, a conviction that I should do something that just wouldn't go away. These times have been the times when I've been called to do something new. <laughs> One memorable time, it was actually the conviction, conviction to stop doing something, which was um, leading the music group here at HTC many years ago, um, which led to a calling to ordain ministry. Today's story reminds us that we need to be attentive and we need to be obedient. We recently spent a few days down at Lee Abbey, a Christian community and conference centre down in Devon. And as we chatted to other Christians there, I was so encouraged by the stories that they told of the way that God had worked in their lives and the things that they had been called to do, both big and small. And we left with a great sense of the Lord being active in our world today. So as we encounter him today in church, in worship and in prayer, how attentive are we to listen to him speaking into our hearts? The Lord longs to reveal himself to us and he wants to work with us for us to work with him, to tell others of his love, to help mend our broken world and to restore his kingdom. 400 years ago or thereabouts, St. Teresa of Avila wrote this prayer. Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. We are his body. Christ has no body. But ours. Each one of us is uniquely qualified for particular tasks, be they big or small. What might Christ be calling you to today, or indeed tomorrow? It's a question we could all prayerfully ask ourselves each and every day, listening, as did Ananias and Saul in Damascus, with attentiveness and with obedience.